You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. In my three presentations this weekend, uh, I'll be sharing with you my favorite subject, and it's the disciplines of the Christian life. The disciplines of the Christian life are not complicated. It's read your Bible, pray, share your faith. If you show me somebody that is reading their Bible, I'm talking about on a regular basis, studying the Bible, they're spending quality time with God in prayer, and they're making an honest effort to tell others about Christ, those people will be growing. I can almost always guarantee someone that is struggling with backsliding is neglecting one of those three disciplines in the Christian life. If you've ever looked at the sanctuary, you know that there's one door in. That's Jesus. He's the door. And the, the, the bullseye of the sanctuary is you're moving through. If you go through the courtyard, you go by the altar, by the labor, you go into the holy place, and ultimately you get into the presence of God. We've been separated from God by sin. But once you go through that labor, that baptism, and you move into the holy place, you have the three disciplines of the Christian life. You've got the bread. It's the word of God. You have the altar of incense. That's prayer. And you have the light. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. That's sharing your faith. And so we're going to be talking about that. I'll be talking this evening about the Word of God. Uh, tomorrow morning we'll be talking about persisting in prayer and uh, sharing in the power of the Spirit tomorrow evening. So you kind of know where I'm heading. These are my favorite subjects to talk about. In the beginning, God said... Everything around us now has been brought into existence by the Word of God. God still creates by His Word. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. We do not know exactly what Jesus looked like. If I ask you to close your eyes and try and picture Jesus, many of us will conjure up some image that probably looks like some painting we've seen. But we really don't know. He looked like probably a normal Galilean because even when they came to arrest him, they had to ask Judas, which one is he? You know, we always see him, he's wearing, you know, this beautiful white robe and he just kind of stands out. But he was able to mix into a crowd and disappear pretty quick. It wasn't what Jesus looked like. It wasn't because he could sing like David. We only have one record that he sang at the Last Supper. He wasn't necessarily as strong as Samson. What changed the world about Jesus in his three and a half years of public ministry is what he said. And of course, his sacrifice for us, which was the culmination of that message. 10% of everything Jesus said, he is quoting from the Bible. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, from them you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. The Bible is telling us about Jesus. Now, the key to the Christian life is love. Ten commandments are summed up in love. 
Love God, love your neighbor. It's difficult to love someone you don't know. I mean, a lot of people just have, the, you know, kind of a generic love of God in their hearts. But, you know, when, if you're going to marry somebody, you want, don't want that generic love. It's a little more specific, right? Amen? I want to make sure you're still following me. How do you get to know somebody? You talk with them. Yeah, you communicate with them. They communicate with you. And through that communication, you find you love the character, the essence of who that person is, which is conveyed through time and through communication. We communicate with God through our prayers. He communicates with us through his word. If you love God better, you'll obey him better. If you love God better, you'll want to talk to him more. If you love God more, you will share more with others about God. You know, I find people have no problem at all talking about what they love. You talk to a person 15 minutes and they're all wrapped up in airplanes, they're going to talk about airplanes. And I've, I've talked to people that I meet and I kind of fish around to find out what their interests are and as soon as you touch their, their interests, they come alive. And, you know, some people it's all about football or baseball or whatever it might be. And you mention it, you can just see them sparkle. And they're happy to talk to you about that on and on because they love it. If we love God more, the gospel would go a lot faster because you couldn't keep us from talking to people about God. So the key is really in loving God. Well, how does that happen? You've got to know him. And we know him through his word. Now, as we're entering the last days, I think it's critical that God's people individually really need to be rooted in the Word. Uh, we heard some great testimonies about the importance of a book. And uh, over 40 years ago, a Jewish atheist hippie was living in a cave, and I'd read a lot of books, but I read the Bible. And that just changed my life. It was different. And then I read The Great Controversy. After accepting Christ, you know, I'd never even heard of Seventh-day Adventists, but after reading that book, I thought, I have no other options. This is the truth. And so there's power in books. There's power in words. If right now I should close my eyes, I could still preach a sermon. If you were to duct tape my feet together, I could still preach a sermon. I'm glad I can walk. You could tape my hands behind my back and tape my feet, plug my ears, pinch my nose off so I can't smell, and put a bandana over my eyes, and I could still change your life by sharing the Word of God. There's nothing more powerful than the Word. And so, if you want your life to be transformed, we need to be spending quality time in the Word. Now, it's more important now than it's ever been because you're living in a culture now where you are being bombarded by so much information, unlike any other time in history. There's never been a time like this where we are literally living in a blizzard of information. And you know, we sort of get addicted to it. You sort of get used to it. And I remember when uh, Blackberry phones came out, we had one gal in our office and her husband called it her Crackberry. 
because he said it was like an addiction. She's always checking her phone, and, and uh, we got to know her better. I thought, yeah, she constantly couldn't have it out of her reach, and she, she was busy, needed it and for business and everything like that. Well, you know, I've sort of started getting that way, where, you know, I used to just, I didn't even keep my phone with me. It's one of those smartphones. It's a lot, I don't know half of what it does. I know less than half of what it does. I probably don't know 10% of what it does. I probably don't know 1% actually of what it, what it does. I, I'm being honest. Now that I think, the more I think about it, I might not know one-tenth of 1% of everything my phone will do. But um, I found that, you know, I just keep going back to it. There's a little, oh, beep, beep, there's a little text or, you know, there's some new news alert and all this stuff, and I'm afraid I'm going to miss something. It might be a new amazing fact that I could use. I could be missing or something. And if you're anything like me, it just gets where the information is just, you're bombarded on every side. So to compensate, because you are the sum total of what you're taking into your mind. You are what you're taking into your mind. You are what you eat. That's true physically and it's true spiritually. So what are you eating? Oh, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. Ye that have no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you eat that which is not bread? A lot of people out there, they're Christians that do not eat much of the bread of life. You know, I understand that 90% of the advertising budget in North America is spent on the most, or the least nutritious foods. 90% of the advertising bucket, uh, budget in North America is spent on the least nutritious foods. Why do you eat that which is not good? But it's also true that the majority of Christians spend a fraction of their study time reading the Bible. They'll be checking out all kinds of websites and involved in all kinds of chat and catching up with all of their friends on Facebook. And you say, what percentage of your time are you studying the Word? You know, the Bible very rarely says read the Bible. It often says study the Bible. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Now, I emphasize this because I think as we're entering the last days, we're going to be challenged. There are so many subtle messages that are going out in our culture right now, and I see Christians buying into some of this stuff. And it really worries me. There's some toxic things. You know, the devil was the first one to create the cancel culture to try to cancel God's word. He said to Eve, half God said, asking believers to second-guess the Word of God, questioning the Word of God. All the misery in the world today is because the devil planted doubts about the Word of God. Look where it got us. And so it's so important, friends, that we know every man needs to be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks the reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. We need to be ready to know why we believe what we believe. And the reason I'm in evangelism is not because I put in an application to be an evangelist. It's just I started sharing my faith and my other Christian friends would challenge me and I had to look it up so I could give them the scriptures. And the more I studied, the more convinced I was the Adventist church was the truth, but I needed to show it from the Bible. Now, I'm a 100% believer of the spirit of prophecy. And I believe we need to know the spirit of prophecy. And in our family, we read it every day. 
But Seventh-day Adventists right now, one of the principal criticisms that you're going to hear when you tell people of other faiths that you're Seventh-day Adventists is say, you base your teachings on Ellen White. How many of you have heard that? And they've got all these really bizarre anti-Ellen White websites. Most of them are very ill-informed. And that's why it's all that much important, more important for us to be able to say, I can show you from a thus saith the Lord why I, why I believe everything I believe. And by the way, that's what Ellen White said we should be able to do. Give the scripture. And so, friends, do you read your Bibles? We're going to look at a story in the Bible. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. 2 Chronicles 34, and I'll give you a little backdrop of where this is transpiring in Bible history. Israel had gone through a bad spell. The church had gone through a time of apostasy, probably close to 60 years. Manasseh had been king for 55 years, and he had actually set up idols in, in the temple of the Lord. If you can imagine that, he had offered human sacrifice. Then he was followed by his son Amnon, and he was so wicked after two years, God said, as enough is enough. And then this young king, who must have had some good mentors or a good mother, he just grew up out of that swamp, and he turned into a lily. And it says that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years. And as you read through the history of Josiah, the Bible says there was no king like him before him, and that's including David. And there was no king like him after him. He may not have been as strong or as smart or as David or as wise as Solomon, but he was consecrated. And when he became king, he realized that he wanted to seek after God. You can read that in verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while still young, well, he begins to reign at eight, and the eighth year of his reign is how much? Quick. 16, 8 and 8, right? He began to seek the God of his father, David. He went through a conversion experience. Maybe the priests were talking to him, and, and um, he was inspired by David and his dedication and said, those were the glory days. What made the difference? David sought after the Lord. He told Solomon, if you seek after God and obey the commands of God, he'll be with you. And and maybe he was reading some of the Proverbs, but he had a conversion experience. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the wooden images and the carved images and the molded images. He says, you know, how did we get into idolatry? He knew about the Ten Commandments, and they broke them in pieces. Then you go, it says, in the 18th year of his reign, I'm in verse 8 now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land in the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the governor of the city, to Joiah and Jehoahaz, a recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. The temple had fallen into great disrepair. As I mentioned, Manasseh had set up idols in the temple. And it says that as Hilkiah the priest and others began to purge and to clean, you know, you know what a hoarder is, don't you? I don't know if you've ever been to the home of a hoarder. Maybe you, you are a hoarder. I'm sorry if you are, but if you're married to one, I'm sorry too. But uh, I've gone and made home visits before, and I don't want to put anyone on the spot and make you feel guilty, but 
I literally had to climb over stuff to get to a place to, to visit with somebody. And they, they apologized pro, profusely. But um, the temple sort of started looking like that. It had turned into a catch-all. It was a mess. And so they're cleaning out the temple. And in the process of cleaning out the temple, then, verse 15, Hilkiah answered and says to Shaphan the scribe, now here's Hilkiah, the priest, saying to Shaphan the scribe, what do scribes do? They copy out scripture. They also would be writing down the chronicles of the king as he spoke and made different laws and the minutes for the, the different board meetings they had. He said, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. I've underlined that in my Bible because it's just to me, it's incomprehensible that here you are, the people of God in Jerusalem, in the temple of God, the priest of God says, look here, I found the Bible in the church. Is it just me or does that strike you as just a really bizarre statement? And he actually calls over the scribe and says, look what I found. What is it? I think it's, I think it's the Bible. Well, let's read it. I, I, I still, I'm still mystified even looking at you. Do I look mystified? That here you've got the people of God. Their whole existence is based upon this book. And somehow they had the temple, they probably still had rituals, and they had Jerusalem, the holy city, and they're the chosen people. And they said, what do you know? There's a Bible here. Well, let's read it. They had somehow lost the word of God among the people of God. Now, that's not the first time that's happened in history. Even during Christ's time, he says, you do err not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. And why do they call the dark ages the dark ages? Martin Luther got a hold of a Bible. He said, looky here. The just shall live by faith. The church, with all its magnificence, and St. Peter's Cathedral, actually they were building it back then, and they had this hierarchy and millions of followers and Martin Luther, who is a priest in the church, had very limited access to the Bible. Could that happen again? Have you read in Amos where it said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send, Amos chapter 8, I'll send a famine on the land, not a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Now, who does Amos write to? He's writing to the church. He's talking about a famine for the word of God in the church of God. You know, I think it's, I think it's still true today. Now, when I talk about the church of God, I'm not just singling out Seventh-day Adventists, but Karen and I just spent four days with Christians from all over. These are leading Christians from all over. We, we were in the same room with Kenneth Copeland. I'm not saying that we adhere to <laughs> but I'm just saying a lot of the leaders were at this meeting, and we talked to these people on the floor. Actually, Karen got into a debate with one fella. He stared at us for a little while. He stared at our booth, and he said, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. And she said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, you're going to church on the wrong day. And, she said, <laughs> and Karen gave him a few Bible answers, and he got mad. He just turned and walked away. 
But most people were very nice. That was one, one rare experience. But I was just amazed that, you know, these are the people of God, and we're handing out the magazine American Prophecy and the Kingdoms in Time, and they're, they said, oh, man, we've been wanting to hear about prophecy. Is America in prophecy? Oh, and just they're just eating it up because there's a hunger for the Word of God in the Church of God. And by the way, in case you didn't know it, in the book Great Controversy, Ellen White says the greatest part of Christ's true followers are in the fellowship of other churches. That's why the second angel's message is Babylon has fallen, come out of her, my people. And we met a lot of God's people this week that just don't know. But if they're going to know, we need to know. Right? You know the, no, I'll share that with you tomorrow. So, I want you to notice what happened. When they read the book of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest finds it, by the way, how did it get there? If you look in Deuteronomy 31, I think they found the book of Deuteronomy, calls it the book of the law. It says, so when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it might be there as a witness against you. And somehow that scroll, maybe during the days of Amnon or Manasseh, it had just gotten stuffed off in a corner somewhere, and in cleaning it out, he finds this massive scroll of Deuteronomy signed by Moses. Can you imagine? Uh, it's like the Magna Carta of the nation, and they had misplaced it. It's the constitution of the people. The Bible is our constitution, amen? So they find that. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing king words, saying, all that was committed, I'm in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 34, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. And they've gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord, and they've delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen who are doing all this renovation. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. We found a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, you can read the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. By the way, every time Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, every time he answered with, it is written, it is written, it is written, all three times he quoted from Deuteronomy. So Jesus, I believe, had memorized the book of Deuteronomy. And Shaphan read it before the king. And you can read it in, you know, a couple hours. And it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes, because not only does Deuteronomy have a wonderful section in chapter 28 called the blessings, you keep reading in the last half of the chapter, it's actually longer than half, is the cursings. The cursings that will come upon the people if they disobey. And everything that Moses had said there had happened. And Josiah suddenly realized all these curses have come upon us because we have forgotten the Lord. Could that happen again? Could it happen to a nation? That's why the king, when he heard the words, he tore his clothes and he wept. And he sent Shaphan and Hilkiah, and he says in verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel. 
So much of Israel had been carried off at this point. And Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, Oh, that my people, oh, that my people would keep all of my commandments always, that it might be well with them and their children. Don't you want it to be well with your children? God promises great blessings if we walk in his word, but we're not going to do that if we don't know it. So he said, send inquire of us to the Lord. And it so happens that they went to visit. There's a prophetess in the land, Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the keeper of um, Tokua, the son of Harash, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they spoke to her to this effect. And then she sends back a message to the king. And I'm, I'm summarizing the story because this is actually several chapters. I encourage you to read it. And she said, there is great judgment coming upon this land. But because you've humbled yourself, God has seen your tears. He's going to prolong your prosperity. This is what Nebuchadnezzar, he had that dream about the tree cut down. And Daniel said to him, I counsel you to humble yourself, show mercy to the poor, that it might be a lengthening of your prosperity. Even wicked queen, King Ahab, when he humbled himself and he repented, God said, because Ahab has humbled himself, I'm not going to bring this judgment in his days, but I'll bring it in the days of his son. So if you want to lengthen your tranquility, God's people need to humble ourselves. Eventually, Jesus is going to come, and it's going to be a mess in the world. You know that. But I think we ought to do all we can do as Christians to prolong our tranquility, to preach the gospel while we've got this freedom. And it's all rooted in the word of God. Now, in the process of what the king did, the prophet has sent back word and she said, God's, God's heard you. The judgment's still coming because there's been a lot of innocent blood shed by your grandfather, Manasseh. I want you to notice that they read the Bible. The Bible reading led to repentance. It led to request. It was relayed publicly. It brought reformation, restoration, and revival. Now let's, let's look at some of these things and we'll talk about it. It says here, first of all, they had a little house cleaning. In the process of the house cleaning, any of you, you know, spring cleaning can be uh, nice when it's over, but it can be a real painful process. How many of you have gone through a move after you lived somewhere for several years? You know, they say there are several very traumatic events in a person's life. A death, a birth, a marriage, hopefully not in that order. A divorce and a move can be very traumatic. Some of us need to do an inventory and ask the Holy Spirit to do some house cleaning. You know, what often happens is we get comfortable we get comfortable. We, we start storing and filling our houses with junk, and we get comfortable just kind of stepping around things. Don't clean out the refrigerator as often as maybe it should be cleaned out, and we don't really do anything about it until something starts to crawl out of that bottom drawer. 
And until there's a problem, we just kind of get comfortable. And it might be a little painful, but every now and then you've got to do a house cleaning. So they were cleaning the house. I meet people that um, they come to Christ and they're baptized. But even after they're baptized, they find there's still that sin they struggle with. Then you talk to them 20 years later and they still have the sin, but it doesn't bother them anymore. God's word does not change. Some of us, we just don't hear the train going by because we've lived so long by the tracks. I've talked to people that live at the um, runway, end of a runway at an airport, and while I'm visiting them, the whole house shakes and the roar of the plane taking off right overhead. I say, how can you guys live with that? And they go, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, you don't hear like the DC-3 taking off? Just right? Oh, yeah, no, you get used to it. And there are people who have been in the church for years, and they've got this sin that they know is wrong, and they've quieted their conscience, and because God doesn't strike them with lightning, they figure it must be okay. But God's word doesn't change. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. God is calling us to holiness and purity. And uh, those truths, of course, come from the Bible. So they had a house cleaning. Then they read the book. The Bible must be read. Everything that happened in this revival and reformation and restoration all followed the reading. Do you have a regular Bible reading program in your family? Every day, you probably heard me say this ad nauseum, but I just, I, I, I know how important it is in my life. I'm like you. I'm surrounded by, like I said, this, uh, just this flood of information all the time. And unless I'm saturating my mind with the Word of God, every chance we get Karen and I driving here, I've downloaded mission stories, just driving from, where did we land today? Grand Rapids? Driving from the airport here. We've saved these great mission stories. And uh, by the way, listening to a good one today called The Heavenly Man about the missionary work in China. It's got about 700,000 copies out there. Great, but we've been listening to stories about all the missionaries, everyone from Adoniram Judson to Hudson Taylor and, and Clara Barton and all, and, and it just inspires you, keeps your head in the right place, if you know what I'm saying. Wake up, read my Bible. I'm always reading through the Bible every day. The only day of the week that I'm not reading through the Bible is Sabbath because I'm usually touching, off, touching up my sermon in Sabbath school at that time. But I figured the manna fell six days a week. There's none on Sabbath. So that's what I do. Six days a week, I've got my computer program tells me where I left off, and I'm always reading through the Bible. Then I'm studying the Bible as I do sermon preparation, write articles, and so forth. And then in my car... We've got it preset to Christian stations, Christian music, and I barely make it. I'm barely getting enough spiritual nutrition because it's diluted with all the other noise that's in the background in our culture today. You're just constantly being bombarded with information. And so you need to make a conscious effort to spend time in the Word. Read it. Someone said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a person who is not falling apart. Sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. It needs to be a priority. 
I remember reading an amazing fact that um, in the brief days of the Pony Express, you know, it looms very big in history, but it only lasted three years. It was replaced with a telegraph. But it went to from San, from St. Louis to San, Sacramento, where we are, and um, they would have these horses that would ride on these um, relays. A horse could make it 50 miles and almost at a full gallop. Uh, these little mustangs would would run, and then they'd get a fresh horse. And the riders would, you know, sometimes ride 100 miles a day. And they had these paper thin saddles. They could not use spurs because they were too heavy. Everything about the Pony Express rider, they were not allowed to carry a weapon, even though they went through often hostile territory. And the letters were like $5 a letter, which was astronomical back then, if, if you can imagine that. It was on tissue paper, so they could carry as much as possible and keep the weight down, but every Pony Express rider carried a Bible. Did you know that? My father, um, he had an airline, a couple of airlines, and once he donated a, a life raft to my brother had a camp for kids with cystic fibrosis. And um, I was a counselor. I'd go down to the Florida Keys and we'd have the summer camp for kids with CF. And um, my dad said, here, we got this raft, you know, after a certain amount of time, they're no longer stamped safe and you gotta be replaced, even though they're perfectly fine. And so I said, yeah, we had to dump these uh, life rafts and maybe the kids will have fun. So we took this package out into the water, in this shallow water in the Gulf. And then we pulled the red cord and the kids had so much fun watching the little CO2 cartridges explode and all the air began to come. This thing just like a monster began to open up and make all this noise and creak and pop and unfold until pretty soon you got this 20 man, half the fun was watching the kids' eyes as this thing unfolded. You got this 20 man life raft. It's you know, designed for these jets. And uh, they all got in, they jumped around, they had some fun, and then um, afterward, one of the kids came out and said, Mr. Bachelor, they said, there's a big lump in the middle. We keep hitting ourselves on the lump. So, oh, we forgot to take out the survival gear. So I pulled it ashore. I said, you know, if they're gonna play in this, I better get that out of there. So I, I unzipped the cartridge. They get this, this little pouch in the middle, so no matter how the raft landed in the water, you could always access it. And uh, I unzipped it and I pulled it out. It's got some really neat survival gear. They've done a lot of studies to find out what do you need if you get lost at sea, you're in a life raft in a storm or they don't find you. And they had a water distilling kit. You need water to live. They had vitamins, they had little crackers. I don't know how they probably tasted like hardtack or something. They had little crackles in there. They had some vitamins. They had a patch kit because women would jump into the life rafts with their high heels on, even though they're told not to do that. And they'd poke a hole in it first thing. So they had patch kits, and they had just everything you'd need to survive, first aid kits and all these things. And it was amazing to me how condensed it was. And I'll never forget when I, I said, what is this? A book. It must be a survival book. It was a Bible. And I did a little research. I said, what? I thought there must be someone at the FAA, they're a Christian, they snuck a Bible in this life gear, you know. The Gideons are working undercover in these factories. And, and I found out that, I don't know if they still do it, you know, laws have changed, but back then, every life boat that was on every jet that you flew had a Bible in it. Because during World War II, so many of the pilots, they got shot down 
like Eddie Rickenbacker and others, and they were floating around in there. They had their little army issue New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs in it. And they said the only thing that kept us alive, that gave us hope and helped us keep our faith was the Bible. So they said, we don't understand it, but it works. So are you going to wait until you're like out in the middle of the ocean surrounded by sharks before you take your Bible serious? I told you that uh, just coming here today, we're listening to this tape about the work in China. And um, this one man prayed and fasted for a month that he could have his own Bible. He only knew one person that had a Bible. And then he had a dream that, that someone was going to bring him a Bible. And he told his parents, they said, you're crazy. And they're praying for their son's sanity. And that morning, someone knocked on the door and said, someone, God told us to bring you a Bible. And the, 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 the rejoicing. Karen and I went to Russia. Uh, we were the first Adventist missionaries in Stavropol, this whole section around the Caucasus Mountains, um, since communism. And we brought trunks lo loads of gear there with us. Matter of fact, it was amazing because we somehow, it's hard to believe. You know how they charge you for every little excess bag now? We brought like 13 canisters of baggage. And when we got to the airport, every time we just kept praying, and they said, what's all this extra bags? I said, we're taking humanitarian stuff. Well, we, this has not been approved, and we'd have this long discussion and pray, and they'd put it on the plane. And we got it all the way. And they put, we did have to tip the guys $50 in Russia to, to do it, but they, they put it on the plane. And among the things we brought were Bibles. And I, made a, I did a really dumb thing during our evangelistic meetings in Stavropol through the translator. You know, I thought, well, in, in America, we do our seminar. We were there for several weeks doing an evangelistic program. And I still speak a little bit of Russian right now. But uh, through the translator, um, I said, well, tell them that after the meeting tonight, everyone will get a Bible, but you'll then, you can have the Bible to fill out your lessons. And she looked at me like, I thought maybe I'd cursed and she didn't want to translate it. She went like, I said, yeah, tell them that after the meeting tonight, we'll be giving everybody a Bible. And then they use the Bible to fill out their lesson. So she obediently translated that. And I saw this shocked look on the pastor's faces. And I just begun the meeting. And I said, no, we'll be here for several nights in the Balshoi Zal, the big hall. We'll be doing this meeting, and we'll give a lesson every night when you come in. We want you to fill it out and bring it back, because that's what we did with our Revelation seminars. Everybody got up at the beginning of the sermon and left. And they all went out in the hall. I said, where are they going? They said, you're giving out a Bible. I said, well, that's at the end of the meeting. They said, They're, they have been living in line for years. Whenever a store gets cheese or something, they all get in line. Back then in Russia, you'd see a line, you'd get in the line. You'd say, what are you in line for? I don't know, but there's a line, you better get in the line. <laughs> it's true. And they thought there's going to be a line for Bibles. And they all left the meeting. I said, well, so I said, tell them they really do get to keep them, but they got to come back in. And so we had to wait. They just stopped the whole meeting. Everyone went out. We gave out the Bibles. They all came back in. The pastor said, they're not going to come back. I said, I think they'll come back. And they did. But then Karen and I would walk around town, and we would see people who had these Bibles, and they'd be sitting there stroking them. They'd come in. 
they're holding their Bibles. These are people who had like been hand typing pages of the Bible under tables covered by blankets so the communists wouldn't hear them to get a few words and then they'd copy it with you know three or four pages of mimeograph so they could share with everyone and they were just the word of God was so precious to them. But here, how many of you have five Bibles in your home? And it's on your phone, it's on your computer. Absence can make the heart grow fonder, and familiarity can breed contempt. And sometimes because we have Bibles all around us, it's almost like we take it for granted. I think sometimes we think owning a Bible is a substitute for reading a Bible. Friends, we need to read the Bible. As the king, the young king, read the Bible, he humbled himself, he repented. He, there was a revival in the land. There was a purging in the land. He called the people together. He relayed the Bible publicly. After you read it, then you relay it. You share it. This brought about a reformation and a cleansing in the land, and they had a great revival. They returned. They had forgotten the feasts of the Lord. They had been a great Passover, and they came back to God. I told uh, Elder Mitchiff before I got up, I said, I got five hours of sermon so I'm just going to stop when my time's up. Henry Stanley, he went to Africa looking for David Livingston, and he had, he, he had hundreds of porters carrying all of his stuff because he was on a big, epic expedition. He had been subsidized by the New York Times or uh, New York paper, I forget if it was the Times, to um, go find this missing, missing missionary. And when he started out, he had porters that were helping him carry 180 pounds of books. But as the road got tougher and tougher, and some of the porters either got sick and died or abandoned the mission and the expedition, he was eventually reduced to one book. Stanley started out an atheist on this expedition. The one book he kept was the Bible. And he finally did find David Livingston off in the middle of Africa. And through spending time with that missionary, he was ultimately, and reading the Bible, converted. Livingston, I should mention, he died on his knees at his bed with his Bible open. He used to always read his Bible on his knees. George Whitfield, oh, I'm not saying you got to do this. I'm just saying they revered the Word of God. George Whitfield always read his Bible on his knees. You think you'd probably have a short Bible reading. These guys would read a long time. But they said, this is the message of God to me. I think we've come to where we're taking it for granted, friends. I'll close with a little quote from a poem, John Greenleaf Whittier. We search the world for truth. We call the good, the pure, the beautiful. From carven stone and written scroll, from all old flower fields of the soul, and weary seekers of the best, we come back laden from our quest to find that all the sages said is in the book our mothers read. Sometimes we forget that the answers are in the Bible. I'd like to appeal to you, read your Bibles, know your Bibles, study your Bibles. If you want to love Jesus, Jesus is the Word. The way you're going to get to know him is through his Word. It's his love letter to you. Would you like to know him better? Should we stand together as we ask him when we close?
Loving Father, like the young king, we'd like to begin by repenting. Forgive us, Lord, for our neglect of the sacred message that you've given us that we sometimes just take for granted. Forgive us for the hours that we've wasted filling our minds with foolishness when the word of God is right at hand. As Moses said, the word is not far from you, but it's very nigh unto you. And I pray, Lord, that we can take advantage of this incredible blessing, that we can be feasting on your word, that we might know you better, love you more, serve you better, to share you better, and uh, to represent you, Lord. I pray you'll pour out your spirit on this camp meeting, this, this Sabbath, and help us to sense your presence and your Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Lord. And then I pray we'll have a revival in our personal devotions where we really will be, once again, the people of the book. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.